Good morning. Scripture reading will be from Isaiah, the seventh chapter, verses 1 to 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, be calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's sons have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the sun up to build king over it. Yes, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will too, Ephraim will too shatter to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest of depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. It is not... Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boys, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're going to be looking uh, all over the, uh, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible uh, this morning as we, we think about what this, this word Emmanuel really means for us today. So I invite you to get your Bibles out as well as that outline that you find in the, um, as an insert inside of the announcement sheet. Uh, there are some things for you to write down if there's something that said you want to think about or study on more. It's an opportunity or a place for you to, to write that down as well. And as you're doing that, just a reminder to the fellas that 
This next Tuesday at noon, we're going to have the men's prayer luncheon. Uh, John Skipworth uh, leads that ministry and um, would really love to have uh, just a room full of guys there in the fellowship hall on Tuesday. We'll, we'll have uh, lunch served at noon. It's uh, $5. It's all-you-can-eat pizza and salad, dessert, and uh, some, some uh, soft drinks and, and uh, water and coffee and those kinds of things. And then it's a time of prayer for all the brothers. And we would really love for you to be a part of that. And if you have some questions about it, see me afterwards or, or send an email to John. And he'd love to answer your questions about the men's prayer luncheon. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, every time we come to word, words that, that you have written down for us to know in our heart and in our mind and soul. And we've... we've saturated these words that we're about to study with with the songs of praise that are lifted up to you father recognizing your greatness it's it's really then father for for many of us that we feel so rooted in heaven the 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 place where you are and the place where we will always be in your presence we're grateful for this uh this grace that comes to us especially in light, as Adrian has, has prayed this morning, Father, the kinds of events that transpire in our country that, that bring brokenheartedness and, and bring tears and suffering and anguish to people's lives. It's, it's, it's in these words and in the recognition of Your presence in this life, Father, especially in praise, that we find hope welling up in our hearts. And it's this hope, Father, that becomes the real thing as we live each day. And as we think about the words of these texts, Father, from the Old and New Testaments, we ask You to give us uh, the ability to discern them with eyes that see them and ears that hear them in order not just to be changed, but to be moved to be the kind of people that You would have us to be in this community in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. While uh, doing a little bit of research this past week, uh, ran across a, a book review that was written uh, about 2008-2009 by Garrison Keillor, uh, whom you know from the, uh, the, the radio show that's been on for a couple of decades, Prairie Home Companion. And the book review is found in the New York Times. It's a book review about, of, of uh, Nothing to be Afraid of that was written by Julian Barnes. And uh, there's a portion of this book review that I want to read to you this morning. And uh, just, just as, as sort of a, a, a reminder, this is a book review. Uh, what Keeler is writing about at the beginning of this review is how he is interpreting or how he, this, this book by Julian Barnes is hitting him. And then later he talks a little bit about his response to it. He writes, I don't believe in God, but I miss Him. The book begins. Julian Barnes, an atheist turned agnostic, has decided at the age of 62 to address his fear of death. Why should an agnostic fear death who has no faith in the afterlife? How can you be afraid of nothing? On this simple question, Barnes has hung an elegant memoir, meditation, a deep seismic tremor of a book that keeps rumbling and grumbling in the midst, in the mind, for weeks thereafter. Thanatophobia, which is the fear of death, is a fact of his life. He thinks about death daily and sometimes at night is roared awake 
and pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, and a vicious awareness that this is a rented world. Awake. Alone. Utterly alone. Beating pillow with fist and shouting, Oh no, oh no, oh no, in an endless wail. As you read through the, uh, the book review, you sort of see that this first paragraph is kind, of, is kind of the high point of the book. And Keeler ends uh, a, a part of the review with these words. Keeler writes, Stripped of the Christian narrative, we gaze out on a landscape that, while fascinating, offers nothing that one would call hope. End of quote. I'd agree with that statement. Stripped of the Christian narrative, there is no hope in a world whose landscape is riddled with violence. Stripped of the Christian narrative, there is no hope in a world where human beings try to beat back death, but have not yet been able to do that. Stripped of the Christian narrative, there is no hope, which brings us to the, to the Christian narrative, which is the Bible. Now, a year ago, we went through a year-long study of the Bible. We covered all 66 books in 52 weeks. And we began each message with this statement. It's up here on the screen. I want you to say it with me. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, man, what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. Raise your hand if you remember that statement. That's what we believe. And that's why we study the Bible. And that's what the Christmas story is all about. The birth of Jesus is a story of hope. But when you read the circumstances of it, you have to ask the question, how is it a story of hope? The birth of Jesus is part of what God is doing to put everything back together again. The birth of Jesus is part of what God is doing to put everything back together again. The coming of the Messiah is a bigger part of the Bible than just what we read merely in the Gospels. In fact, it is a story that goes back to the very, very beginning. And there is a history of this hope as it sort of... You know, the, the birth of Jesus is a story that's just found from Genesis to the maps. And there is a trajectory in the story of the birth of Jesus, and it's the trajectory of hope. And it begins at creation. You'll remember that when you open your Bible up to the, the beginning, you find God. The Bible begins with those words, in the beginning was what? God. And this one God is creating heaven and earth, day and night, dry land and, and, and waters, plant life, birds in the air, fish in the water. There's animals on the land. And it culminates in the creation of man and woman, of human beings, and the Sabbath day rest. And these human beings are told to live in this beautiful garden called what? Eden. And Eden is a perfect place. Eden is a place where there's b bountiful food. Where there's, there's, it's a place where no one gets sick. There is no one who's mean or dishonest. There's no violence. There's no injustice. There's no oppression. Nobody dies. The Eden garden is a place where there's nothing, absolutely nothing to fear. There's nothing to feel anxious about. Can you imagine a world in which human, human beings did not have an experience of anxiety? Eden is a place where people are literally living in the, place, in, in the presence of God. 
But you know how the story unfolds. The serpent appears in Genesis chapter 3. He convinces the human beings that there is something to fear. And that something that they are to fear is God. God does not have your best interests at heart. And for some reason, and it's very revealing about the human heart and the human mind, after the experience of God and the experience of the garden and all of that, they decide to believe the message of the serpent. The humans believe what the serpent says, and they eat of the one forbidden fruit because, because now they don't trust God. And there's anxiety. And because human sin has been introduced into the world, they can't live in the presence of God literally anymore. They are expelled from the garden, and that means to not live in the presence of God, it becomes impossible for them to live forever. And human beings begin to die, and the world is filled with thorns and thistles, which is what sin does to the earth. And right before those humans are expelled from the garden, God calls a serpent, the serpent, and the woman and the man together. And the God says to the serpent, in the hearing of the man and the woman, He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. A woman, a birth, the defeat of an enemy. In other words, a son's going to be born to this woman who is going to defeat the evil that has laid humanity low. Which this, this, this story and this theme is seen throughout all of the, the Old Testament. But let us go to the passage that James read to us just a minute ago. It, it, it next rears its head, this, this prophecy, during a crisis. We fast forward to the time when the Jewish people are, are in a crisis. The United Kingdom of Israel has, has split. There's North Israel. There's South Judah. There are ten tribes in the north, two in the south. About 735 years before the birth of Jesus, you have Pekah of Israel and Raisin of Syria who want to go to war with Judah, especially those that are living in Jerusalem because Jerusalem has not been conquered yet, in order to combine Judah's forces with their own in a, in a fight against cruel Assyria. And right now, Judah is not in great shape. Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, and all of his people, the text said that James read for us, they're shaking like a leaf because they know how bad it can get. And as you read the story, South Judah is going to lose in the Syro-Ephraimitic War, 120,000 soldiers and over 200,000 people are taken into captivity. And it's around this time that the prophet Isaiah shows up and he has a prophecy for the king of, of, of Judah. He tells Ahaz, Ahaz, you know you're in a fight that you can't win, that you don't have any hope of winning. And Ahaz and Judah are going to need someone to intervene and to save them. And there are two options. Assyria, which is a human option. Or will you trust God? And Isaiah says, the Lord Himself is going to give you a sign. This virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Isaiah says for Ahaz to keep an eye on this woman who is going to have a son. And when that son is born, she's going to give him the name Emmanuel, which means what church? God with us. 
And by the time he comes to the age of accountability, around 12 or 13 years of age, those two nations that you fear, Aram, whose capital is Damascus, and Ephraim, whose capital is Samaria, Raisin and Pekah, they will be destroyed. They will come to ruin, which is what happens in 721 B.C. But we see the theme, right? Crisis, a woman, birth of a son, the feet of an enemy. We speed forward now to the time of, of Caesar. There are a long line of empires from, from the time that Isaiah gives this to Ahaz to the time that we find where Rome is ruling Palestine. The Jewish nation is, is fragmented tremendously. Uh, if you've ever taken the, the, the course that we teach from time to time about once every ten years on the life and teachings of Jesus, uh, you'll know that we talk about how Josephus records that there are four different groups, main philosophies of Judaism during the time that Jesus is born. There are Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots. On top of the fragmentation of the Jewish religion, there is a taxation that is taking its toll on the people, especially those that are living in northern Galilee. And right now, the rabbis are really concerned that Jewish culture is losing its hold on the hearts of the people and the Hellenization of, of, of Israel is taking place before their very eyes. And it's in the middle of this time that there is an unknown, unimportant, unassuming young virgin by the name of Mary who is to be officially married to this carpenter by the name of Joseph. They live in the village of Nazareth. And in Luke's Gospel, this angel appears to her and says that, the, that, there, that she is the chosen one of God, that she is going to, to give birth to the Son of God. And she, knowing that she has never been with a man, asks, how in the world can this be? I've never, I've never known a man like that. And the angel says that God's Spirit is going to cover her over and that she will bear birth to the Son of God. And she says to him, May it be as you have said. May it be as you have said. Well, life has, has, has just gotten really complicated for Mary and for Joseph. And Joseph doesn't know what to think until there's an angel that appears to him in a dream and says to him, Joseph, and this is in Matthew's Gospel, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God the Son leaves heaven and becomes a human being. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus literally fulfills the words that were spoken to Ahaz and spoken to Joseph and to Mary. God is with us. It is the fulfillment of, 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 of God's vision for the world and for the human project. Paul will write in Galatians chapter 4 that when the time, the set time had fully come, God sent His Son born of a woman. It's a tremendous event. It's a miraculous event. But what does it mean? Three things. And we'll go over these very quickly. It means first that the Christ came to understand and not condemn. 
We all know what John chapter 3, verse 16 says. Anybody really that has paid much attention to the NFL over the last 20, 20 years knows what John 3, 16 says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only what? Begotten Son, His unique Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have what? Everlasting life. And we stop there and we forget what verse 17 says. Verse 17 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And part of that saving involved understanding. You know, one of the things you might ponder the rest of the day and maybe for the, the, the rest of the week and perhaps if you're fortunate the rest of your life is to ponder what it means that God chose to experience what it is that we experience. You know, it's an old cliche, but we get it, right? That you never know what somebody's going through until you do what? You walk in their shoes, right? That's what God did. When God became a human, He was choosing to know what it means to be hungry. He was choosing to know what it means to bleed or to weep from a broken heart. He was choosing to experience and to know what it means to be betrayed by a friend or to be lied about or to be mocked or to suffer injustice. He chose to understand what it means, like we experience uh, many times in our lifetime, what it means to be afraid. And He chose to understand what it means to die. He identifies with us. And that's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the characteristics, one of the virtues of, of being in a relationship with Christ that the Hebrew writer tries to pull out and, and to insert permanently into the heart and the mind of the people that were wondering whether or not it was worth it to follow the Christ, even though tough times were coming. And so that writer says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, when something terrible happens in life and you've made a mistake, you go to somebody who loves you or you go to somebody who knows what it's like. Because that person can empathize with you and give you some comfort because of that. In Christ, we find both of those. Somebody who will help because He loves us, but also somebody who understands exactly what it is that we were tempted with, although He never sinned in it. He understands the temptation. But not only did that Christ come to understand and not condemn, but He came to reveal and not to veil. You know, we don't live very well as human beings with mystery, do we? And especially in the Western culture, we want to know. We want to, we want to understand. We want to, we want to be logical and understand the technology. We want to be able to connect the dots and be able to follow the footsteps and follow the prints and follow the path and, and know all these things. But some things are just too great for the finiteness of our mind. And so Christ came for us to get an idea of what all of those Scriptures in the Old Testament meant and what they taught us about God and what it taught us is about a, what a person looks like when they're pleasing to God and when they look like God and when they do the work of God in the world. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Son, which is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the what? Exact representation of His being. 
What does the fact that God came as a human, ba- as, as a human ba- baby when all through the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you, you, know, you have God appearing in the Bible as thunder and fire and smoke and, and whirlwinds and tornadoes. What does that reveal about God when He comes as a human baby? That God is approachable. What is more approachable than a baby? And what does the fact that God the Son left heaven to come into our world and the world that we have made and the world that is full of, at times, great joy and great happiness, but at other times it just seems like it is filled with anguish and sorrow and tears. What does that mean? That He left heaven to come to be with us in this world. You know, in those old westerns, bad guys would would come into town. They'd kidnap the girl. And that posse would get together and, and would ride into the danger. And what would they do? They, they'd rescue the girl. That's what Christ did. He left the, dang, he, he left the, the, the dangerless, perfect, harmonious, perfect partnership that He had with the Christ. And like those posses in the old western movies, what did He do? He came into the place of danger. He left the place of security and went into the place of danger in order to rescue us. What does that tell us about God? Many of you know the name of, of Kent Brantley, the ACU graduate and, and doctor in Africa. He was one of the, uh, the, the Times men of, of the year as an Ebola fighter in Africa. And what we know uh, from the story that, that Dr. Brantley has told is that you know, there was a price and a danger that, care, uh, uh, that, that came with caring for those suffering and dying with Ebola. And as you know, in the midst of taking care of those that were diseased with this terrible, terrible fever, this, this, this tremendous sickness, he took that sickness on himself and nearly died himself. And this is, is where the Christmas story becomes the story of hope. Is that, is that God... in in the separation that happened all the way in the garden, the cause of sin and thorns and the thistles, is reinserting Himself in human life so that through God with us, we could be with God. And this is how God is putting it back together, that Christ came to be with us, not far from us. And that's the meaning of the name Emmanuel, right? God with us, that God is incarnate, that Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins. That sin that He took away from from us is, is, is the very thing that keeps us from God. And, and Christ took all of that upon Him so that He could fulfill the words of God with us and we could experience God with us every single day of our life. So that Paul could write in Romans chapter 6, if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like this. When we think of the word Emmanuel, we know it means God with us, but the key is the preposition. With. It's with. Not just, not just during the, 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 the moments that we live day to day right now, but with in a resurrection like His for all of eternity. The thing that we lost in the garden. The thing we lost in the garden, we regain in the cross of Jesus. Because of Emmanuel, not only is God with us, but we are with God. Ben will lead us in a song right now. 
Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. There are ways that we can minister to you through prayer, through counsel, Bible study, or baptism, whatever it might be this morning, to make, to make that, that promise of God with us, God with you, solid and a reality and a truth for all of eternity. Then come down and talk to these shepherds right now as we stand and praise God together.